The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. First Corinthians 14 comes in the middle of a broader context, and it probably is important for me to take just a minute to remind you of this context because we took so long going through 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The church of Corinth is a church that is messed up. They are backwards. They are um, sinful. They are uh, close to the world. They are taking pagan practices and incorporating them into the church. And Paul begins this letter with a short Uh, commendation for the church, but then quickly moves into condemnation of this church. And that pretty much covers the rest of the book where Paul is addressing this church at Corinth and their, their shortcomings, their mistakes, the way they've misunderstood things, the way they've misapplied things. There have been in the church at Corinth an adoption of human philosophies. That is chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 as Paul addresses these uh, human philosophies that have entered into the church. The church has been um, segregated over these. That There's been cults of, of personalities within the church. and So Paul writes to them to correct that. In chapter 5 and 6, Paul addresses the sexual immorality that's taking place inside the church, a kind that even pagans wouldn't even mention is being ignored within the church. In chapter 6, the church is taking each other to court and suing each other publicly. And Apostle Paul addresses that and shows them that there's Issues between believers should be handled internally to protect and preserve the testimony and the message, the mission of the church. In chapter 7, the the church in Corinth has totally misunderstood, misapplied marriage and family relationships. And so Paul writes to address those issues. Chapter 8, 9, and 10 church at Corinth is confused when it's pagan worship, as they've adopted those practices into their own worship. And they're confused, especially around this issue of meat, sacrificed to an idol, and it is causing brothers to stumble and to fall into sin. Chapter 11, Paul addresses some of the roles of women in the church. Chapter 12, the church's worship and the use of spiritual gifts which have been misunderstood, misapplied, misused. And then chapter 13, their lack of of love. So Paul takes all of this to say, listen, there's a better way to do things than the way that you're doing them. And the better way to do them is to do them in love. But the church of Corinth, they didn't have a a proper understanding or perspective of what true love is. And so Paul explains to them, expounds to them what love really is and how love is expressed and how it should be expressed inside the church. This is the context of chapter 14, that the church, the corporate gathering of believers in Corinth had uh, become confused and it had 
uh, been welcoming in the practices of, of the pagan culture around it, bringing those into the church, causing confusion and spiritual harm to the believers in the church. They had began to practice what's known as ecstatic speech. They viewed this as the highest of all spiritual gifts when you, you get yourself into a trance-like state and you make an utterance that you claim is from God or from the, the Spirit of God. And as brothers and sisters would, would do this in the church, they would think of themselves as more spiritual and the church would look at them and say, wow, what a spiritually mature person because they've, they've stood up and, and, and spoke some gibberish. The crazier it was, the more spiritually mature they thought that they were. They were receiving some special direct revelation from God. So much so that they were saying that God was telling them that Jesus is accursed. This was happening in the church. So Paul starts to address those issues, takes... This, this break in chapter 13 to address the issue of love and then returns to this issue in chapter 14. You see, Corinth was confused on a very important question. And that question is, what does it mean to be a spiritual person, a spiritually mature person? What does it mean to grow up, like Paul said in chapter 13? It's time to, to grow up. What does that mean and what does that look like? In Corinth, they would have seen a spiritual person, a spiritually mature person as someone with the presence of ecstatic speech. But the reality is that a spiritually mature person is one who is like Christ Jesus. If you had to define what it means to be spiritually mature, the definition of that is to be like Christ. That's what it means. It is someone who uses their gifts from God for the service of others. That's a spiritually mature person. That's Christ, Matthew chapter 20. Verse 26, Jesus says, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. There is... The picture of spiritual maturity. A life lived in service for others. Someone who uses their spiritual gifts not for their own good, not for their own name, not for their own acclaim, not for their own reputation, but they're using the spiritual gifts that God has given them for the, the service for the betterment of another person. Corinth wasn't doing that. For the church at Corinth, uh, a spiritual gift was, was given for them to exercise so that 
they could elevate themselves in the life of the church, not serve others. So in chapter 14, Paul's argument is that tongues is not the primary spiritual gift. It's not the most important spiritual gift. As a matter of fact, it is a secondary gift. And that it is secondary specifically to the gift of of prophecy. All right? That's chapter 14. You view church at Corinth as tongues being the pinnacle, the top, the, the highest. Rightly understood, tongues, secondary at best. Secondary at best. That's the, that's the whole argument. Paul bases that argument on the truth that tongues is useless to edify. That tongues is useless to build up. That, that tongues is, is useless in the development of another believer in the development of The church. That's Paul's argument. Prophecy, more primary than tongues, because prophecy builds up, tongues does not. To edify, when we say edify, it means to build up. To to help in the spiritual maturity and the spiritual growth of the church as a whole and of the individuals in the church. And that tongues is useless to build the church up in spiritual maturity. So it's, it's secondary. That's the argument. That's where we're going. And then Paul's going to lay out this argument and give his, his reasons behind it. Look with me, verse 1. Paul says, pursue love. Pursue love. This, this coming after the, the greatest chapter on love ever written, the greatest teaching on love, the greatest explanation on love ever written, Paul's closing remarks on chapter 13 are to pursue love. You do know Paul didn't write in chapter and verse. That was added later. This is just a, a flow of, of thought inspired by the Holy Spirit. Paul is penned. Let's wrap up everything that was in chapter 13 by me telling you to pursue love. Pursue love. That is to follow after love. To hunt. It's the same word for hunt. To chase after love. This this word for pursue is the same word used for Persecute. Persecute. Here's the the image of that. Let's think of the Apostle Paul himself who was zealous, eager to to persecute the church. So what was he doing? He was was hunting Christians to persecute the church. That's what what he's doing, right? When he's he's saved on the road to Damascus, he he is hunting Christians to persecute them. That's the kind of zealous fervor that we should have as we pursue love. That's what Paul is saying here. You, you chase after love. Chase after love. And then Paul says, and 
earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Now, I think this is important for Paul to, to put this early on because he doesn't want what he's about to say and what, how he's about to teach to be confused that Paul is saying that spiritual gifts aren't good. Spiritual gifts are good. They are not bad. And the reason why they are good is because they come from a good God. It is a good God that gives good gifts to His people. And so earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, Paul says. You see, Corinth was desiring spiritual gifts, but their desire was for the more showy gifts. The gifts of tongues above all others. And so Paul says, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. All of them. Don't get caught up on one. Desire them all. But especially, Paul says, that you may prophesy. Above all else, desire prophecy. Now, we don't see it in our translations But this word is in the plural form. And that's really important to understand what I believe Paul means here. It isn't that an individual should desire prophecy and and pray that he could prophesy. I think the meaning here is that the church as a whole... The corporate body should desire that the gift of prophecy be used in their gathering together. That as a church, you should pray. This is plural. As a church, you should pray together that the gift of prophecy be used in your corporate gatherings. Now... Just for clarification, let me remind you what this gift is, this gift of prophecy. First, it was the receiving of direct revelation from God. And then telling it. That was prophecy. Now, that's in past tense for a reason. It was a person receiving from God direct revelation, communicating that revelation to God's people. That that was prophecy. However, God has completed His direct revelation. His direct revelation is closed. Jude 3, we must contend earnestly for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. That God is not delivering direct revelation to His people in an authoritative way like we have in, in the Bible. That's why you will never hear me say, God told me. Because when a, when a preacher, when a person says, God told me, then what that implies is what they receive from God is direct revelation. And if it was direct revelation, then it carries just as much authority as the Word of God. That cannot be true. The Word of God completed, it alone stands as the authority. That was prophecy. Now... The spiritual gift is still at work, but it's at work in a different way. This word prophecy means forthtelling. That's what it means. Now, we've sort of taken it to mean that you're telling something before it happens, right? You're predicting the future. But that is not the clearest, simplest, easiest, most uh, easily understood definition. It is to stand before people and tell them something. That's prophecy. So now what it is, is someone 
telling the direct revelation from God that's already come in His Word. It is the proclamation of the Word of God. That is the gift of prophecy. That's what I'm doing now. I'm not telling you some direct revelation that I receive from God individually and specifically. What I am telling you is the direct revelation from God that has come and has been completed and is our authority. That is prophecy. And it is still used today. Hopefully. Some places, maybe not. Here's what Alistair Begg says of this gift. And I think this is an important distinction. Um, and out of everything I, I read, he's the only one that makes this distinction. And I really feel like it's, it's helpful. He says that prophecy is, the bring, is, is bringing the truth of the word of God to bear on the people of God where you worship. That's how he, that's how he defines it. It's, it's bringing the truth of the word of God to bear on the people of God where you worship. And then he makes this important distinction. He says this involves primarily preaching and teaching. But it also involves our fellowship. (coughs) That as we gather and as we interact with one another, that the word of God should come to bear on the people of God because it just sort of, oozes out of us. It just sort of leaks out of us. And so as we interact with one another, as we're saturated with the Word of God in our private life, as we gather together, as we interact with one another in our gathering together, that we encourage one another, we pray with one another, we spur one another on towards godliness. We do that through the Word of God being brought out in our interactions together. I think that's a, that's, a, that's a very helpful distinction. It's a good way to think about how the Word of God is brought to bear on the people of God. May it never be just from a man standing here and preaching God's Word, but may it also be joined with you and with me as we interact together and we bring the Word of God to bear on to one another as we encourage and build up and edify and pray and when we need to convict. It's the word of God to bear on the the people of God, that the, the word of God should work through it all. The word of God should be working through every aspect of our gathering. Should be working through our worship. That's why we choose songs not based on how catchy they are, not based on how well you know them, not based on if WDJC is playing them, but we choose, we choose songs based on, on the Word of God. Are they accurate to, to the Word of God? That's why our, our, our children's ministry, we want it to be fun, we want it to be clean, we want it to be safe, but we, we also want it to be saturated in, in the Word of, of God. We want the, the Word of God flowing out of everything we do, working out of everything we do. And so Paul tells them to earnestly desire that more than tongues. All right, that's the basis for this chapter. Then, I think we're going to get to 19. We're going to do our best. Then Paul forms his argument, okay? He forms his argument of, of why you should desire that more than, than tongues. And the first main reason is that 
tongues doesn't edify because tongues is unintelligible. So tongues doesn't edify because tongues isn't understood. Verse 2, look what Paul says. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Now, I want to be clear here. Because some will take this and look at this as a teaching on the right understanding of tongues. That when you speak in tongues, you're speaking to God and you're uttering mysteries in in the Spirit. That that's what happens when you speak in tongues. That's not what Paul is saying here. What this is, is a statement of what's taking place in Corinth more than it is a teaching on tongues. That that's what's happening in Corinth. These these people are standing up, they're claiming to have some word from God, and they're speaking to God, and they're they're, they're uttering these mysteries in the Spirit. You see, what what was happening is this kind of of experience where you you get into this trance-like state, and you're you're overcome with emotion, and then you utter some, some foreign language that's unintelligible. That was common in... Uh, Eastern religions, those are known as mystery religions. They were common around the world outside of of Christianity and Judaism. What Corinth had done was take, they took that from these, these, these false religions, these mystery religions, and brought them into the church. That's why Paul says these, these mysteries in the spirit. These mysteries in the Spirit. Listen, nowhere in Scripture do you ever see anyone talk to God in a mystery language. Nowhere. Never. Not one time. You do see people talk with God, but it is not in a mystery language. The only place in all of God's word that it is mentioned is here and Corinth was not an example. They were the problem. You see Paul's point is no one understands what you are saying. It does not benefit the church because no one understands what you are saying. Then he holds that up against prophecy in verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. What he's saying is when, when a brother stands and proclaims God's word to you, you are built up. The church is, is edified. It's built up. You are encouraged. You're consoled by the word of God. Compare that to tongues. Nobody has a clue what you're saying. But when we prophesy, you know, and you're built up. Therefore, verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. So Paul says, Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Now, there's a couple of important things to note here in verse 5 and really throughout 
the whole chapter. I want to draw your attention to a distinction used in the word for tongues throughout the chapter. If you notice, the word is used differently. Sometimes the word is singular and other times it is plural. That is common as you flow through chapter 14. Now, there are a lot of people who put a lot into that. And I don't know that I'm one that I necessarily want to build everything off of that, but I do think that it is important and it is pretty interesting. And I think there's some validity to the thought here. Here's the thought. Anytime the word tongue is used singularly, tongue, it's used as Paul in reference to the wrong use of the spiritual gift. And anytime it's used in plural form, it's used to describe the right use of the spiritual gift. Okay? Because there was a right use of, of tongues. But there was also a wrong use of tongues. That holds true throughout the whole chapter. Every time you see it in singular, it is, it, it, it's, a, it's a wrong use of the word, of the gift. Every time you see it in plural, it's the right use of the, the gift. It's interesting to note that the wrong use of tongues is just gibberish. That's what it is. Okay? It's, it's gobbledygook. It is gibberish. There is only one kind of gibberish, right? And that's gibberish. There's not multiple kinds of gibberish. Gibberish is gibberish. But tongues used in the right way as earthly languages, that was the gift. There are multiple earthly languages, right? So it can be plural. So I see it. I think it probably holds. You can even see it here. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. That's the wrong use. But the one who prophesies builds up the the church. Um, Then verse 5, now I want you all to speak in tongues. That's the right use. But even more to to prophesy, you you, you see it, it flows throughout the whole chapter. So what Paul's saying in verse 5 is, I wish you all had the real gift of tongues. This is plural. So some would say, see, right there. Chapter 14, verse 5, everyone should speak in tongues, right? If you've never heard someone speak in tongues take you to that verse, then you've probably never had a conversation with someone who speaks in tongues. But let's think about this critically and with context in view. What Paul is using in verse 5 is exaggeration to make a point. What he is wishing is the impossible. That's what he's wishing. Now, why do I say that? Why do I say that it is impossible for every person to speak in tongues? Well, the reason why I can on sure footing stand and say that is impossible is because of the clear teaching that's already come in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 30, it says, Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? The Greek construct of that, that verse begs the answer, no. Right? 
I mean, that's, that's the point. What Paul is, is saying is a rhetorical question that begs the answer, the given answer, the known answer is no. Not all possess the gift of healing. Not all speak with tongues. Not all interpret. That's 1230. How can Paul say, not all do that, but I wish you all did, if he really meant it. Add to that, that it is the Spirit of God that gives the gifts as He chooses. Chapter 12, verse 11. All these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. It is the Spirit of God who sovereignly gives spiritual gifts to the church as He sovereignly chooses. He does not give the same gift to every person. That's 1230. So in 14.5 when Paul says, I wish you all spoke in tongues, but even more to prophesy, what he is using is exaggeration to make the point that prophecy is more important than if every one of you spoke in tongues. You see it? That makes sense. This isn't everyone should speak in tongues. What he's saying is that if the Holy Spirit was to give every one of you this gift, which he won't, but if he did, that would be great, but even greater, the one who prophesies. You see it? The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, plural, right use. Unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. In verse 6, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, that's the right use, how will it benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? So what Paul is saying is, is if all I was to bring you was tongues, it would not benefit you. Only would you be benefited if you were to receive a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. Because you wouldn't know what I'm saying and that would not help you. Now, Paul gives a couple examples. I mean, chapter 14 is pretty interesting. I heard one, one guy say that, that in 14, Paul is, is, is a farmer just tilling the soil over and over again because it's really hard soil. So he just, he just keeps making the same point over and over again. And so now he's, he said tongues is secondary because it's not intelligible. Prophecy primary because it builds you up. And so then he gives this illustration to, to bring home the point. Verse 7. If even lifeless instruments... You know what lifeless instruments are? They're, they're lifeless instruments. There's no life in these. If lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? How can anyone know what is played if everything is just sounds the same? You would never know. Right? I mean, you know how music works. I know how music works. I took a guitar lesson one time. I don't tell stories in the pulpit hardly ever because quite frankly, we don't have time for stories. However, I will tell the story of my guitar lessons because it illustrates the point. My brother is a virtuoso when it comes to all things musical and was the greatest pianist to ever walk the earth. And when everyone found out that his little brother was playing the guitar, they eagerly awaited the same kind of you know, unbelievable gift. They were sorely disappointed in my recital. And then I played football um, because there was no distinction to the notes. 
No one knew what was being played. That's Paul's point. If it's just the same, if it's not able to be understood, if the flute and the harp sound the same, how will you ever know what's being played? And he gives a military example. And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle, right? I mean, soldiers knew when you hear this this tune... I guess ours would be Reveille, right? When you hear this tune, this tune from the bugle, that means it's time to get up and get to battle, right? Well, what if, what if the bugler stood up and, and started playing Mary Had a Little Lamb? No one would know what's going on. And so with yourselves, verse 9. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible... How will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. Just words uttered into the air. No good for anybody. He gives another example. There are doubtless many different languages in the world. And there's not a single one without meaning. But if I don't know the meaning of the language... I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. That word foreigner there is the same word for barbarian. The word barbarian is onomatopoeia. You know what onomatopoeia is? It's, it's words that are just sound like buzz. You know, a bee goes buzz. That's onomatopoeia. That was barbarians, onomatopoeia. Because what they're saying is when you hear a foreigner, a barbarian, a language you don't understand, you don't know what you what you hear is bar 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 that was that was where they got barbarian from that's what he's saying like if i don't know the language i'm a foreigner to them they're a foreigner to me i'm a barbarian to them they're a barbarian to me it's just bar 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 i don't have a clue no one understands then he makes another point Because no one understands, the effects of tongues are emotional and not mental. Verse 12, so with yourselves. Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, and they were, I mean, they eagerly wanted these these amazing manifestations of the Spirit. Paul says, why don't you then take that eagerness and put it into striving to excel in the building up of the church? Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue, that's singular, that's, that's the wrong use, should pray that he may interpret. Now, this is pure sarcasm from the Apostle Paul. This is not saying that you should speak in a tongue and then pray that you can interpret. That's not this, that, this is not teaching. This is sarcasm. Some will say, and they'll go to this verse, and they will say that what Paul is teaching here is a private prayer language. It is not. The context of the entire chapter The context of chapter 12, 13, 14 is corporate, not private. And Paul's being sarcastic. How do I know he's being sarcastic? Well, he likes to be sarcastic. And again, interpretation is a spiritual gift. And not all have the same spiritual gift. 
And the Spirit sovereignly gives as the Spirit chooses, just like before. No one has, not, no one in one church all has the gift of interpretation. This is sarcasm. What Paul is saying is, hey, listen, while you're praying in your gibberish, why don't you pray and ask God to make some sense out of it? That's what he's saying. It's sarcasm. It's sarcasm. Verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, that's singular, it's the wrong use. My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Now, some will say, all right, right here, see? When you speak in tongues, it's your spirit. The reason why you don't know is because your spirit. Your spirit's interacting with God on a spiritual level that, that nobody understands that you can't. It's just, but it, but, it, but it nourishes your spirit. You know what's interesting? This word for spirit is the word pneuma. It's the same word for breath or for air or for wind. The exact same word. What Paul's saying here is, is, for if I pray in a tongue, in a wrong use, in gibberish, if I'm just spouting gibberish, my breath prays, my wind prays. Remember verse 9? You're speaking into the air. Same thought. My mind's unfruitful. If I'm praying in gibberish, it's nothing but hot air. And my mind is not benefited. What am I to do? And Paul says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I will pray with my spirit. I'll pray with my breath. I'll pray with my wind. But I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to pray with my mind also. I'm going to engage my mind. I will sing praise with my spirit. I'm going to sing praise with my, my air. You know, we've said this before as we've been walking through this. What we see today in... in many if not most of the charismatic churches is just Corinth revisited. There's a lot of, of worship that is just, it's just hot air. Paul says, I'm a, I'll, I'll, I'll sing with my breath, but I'm going to tell you what, I'm also going to sing with my mind. You see what Paul just said here? This is so important, and I wish we could paint it on this building, but then we, it's not ours, we'd get arrested. Um, that worship is far more than just emotionalism. I mean, the goosebumps really don't matter. I mean, Jacob can hit a minor chord, I think, and just make everybody have goosebumps. Isn't that what makes you have goosebumps, like minor chords? I don't know. What matters is, is your mind engaged in what you're saying, what you're singing. See, Paul says, otherwise, if I didn't, if I didn't engage my mind... If you gave thanks with your spirit, with your breath, how can anyone in the position of an, of an outsider, that's the word for ignorant, say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? Amen means may it be, may it, may it be so, may it happen. How can someone say amen to your prayer when they don't even know what you're praying? For you may be giving thanks well enough. I mean, you might be getting after it. You might be really giving it. But the other person, they're not being built up because they don't know you're just, it's just gibberish in the air. What you're doing is of no use to anyone. That's Paul's point. That's his point to the church at Corinth. 
What you're doing is of no use to anyone. In verse 18, Paul says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Now, you see here, plural, right use. And people will say, look, right here, I mean, the Apostle Paul, he's not only has he said you ought to speak in tongues, and not only has he said you ought to speak in your spirit, but right here he said he speaks in tongues more than anybody. I mean, but let's think about this critically and let's look at the context here. What Paul's saying here is, hey, church, just in case you don't think I know what I'm talking about, I know what I'm talking about because I speak in tongues more than than any of you. Listen, Paul spoke in tongues. But did you know that this is the only place in God's word where it is recorded? That there is not one place in all of God's word outside of this verse where you ever see Paul mention speaking in tongues or are we given the record of Paul speaking in tongues? Never. But it would make sense that the Apostle Paul spoke in tongues. Why? Because the Apostle Paul was a missionary. And he was a missionary to the Gentiles. He was, he was charged by God to take the gospel to where the gospel had never been. Guess what that means? He was called to take the gospel to languages where the gospel had not come. Languages that he may not have known. What was the purpose of tongues? To break language barriers in the preaching of the gospel. So it is not a stretch at all to believe Paul spoke in tongues. He said he did. I'm sure he did. But what was the context in which he spoke in tongues? It was the mission field. Now I think that is driven home even more and why Paul makes this distinction that he does in verse 19. Look at verse 19. Nevertheless... In church, you see the distinction? In the mission field, I'm speaking in tongues because the gospel needs to to break a barrier because they need to know that I'm from God, that what I'm saying is true and right. But in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct other than 10,000. Listen, that word is the word myriad. You know it in, in Revelation, a myriad, a myriad. Tens of thousands and thousands. Here's what that word did. It was the largest number that had a word associated with it. They're just they're not a bigger number. It was not just like 10,000. What Paul is saying is, I would rather speak five words from my mind, intelligible, so that you can understand and be built up in spiritual maturity, than countless words of gibberish. Now, we made it through 19 verses. Now, church, it is very easy for us to sit back and to say, you see here, charismatics, you are wrong. And they are. But if we do that, we're missing the larger point. The larger point is that our priority should be the edification of others. That is our purpose in gathering together, regardless of the gift. Listen, if you are not using 
your spiritual gifts to build up other people, you are just as guilty as the Corinthians. We should be asking ourselves, has my attendance here today benefited those around me? Have I been an instrument for their edification? That's the point. That's the larger point. And may we never sit back and just look at this text and go, see here, you're wrong. But may we look at it and say, God, would you help me not be like the Corinthians, not using my gifts to serve others, not using my gifts to build up the church, not having as my priority the edification of other people, the building up of other people. God, would you help me not be like the Corinthians? Take tongues out of it. If you're given the gift of administration and you are not using it for the building up of others, then you're just as guilty as, as they are. If you've been given the gift of teaching and you are not using it to, to benefit others, you're just as guilty as they are. And down the list we can go. The point is, primarily, our gathering together exists so that the Word of God can come to bear on the people of God as the people of God use the gifts of God to build up one another. That's the point of the text. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.